Section 48 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle Chapter 16, verses 1 to 12 Enmity of the Scribes and Pharisees Christ's Warning Against Them Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 12 The Pharisees, also with the Sadducees, came, and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, when it is evening, ye say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, It will be foul weather to-day, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites! Ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas and he left them, and departed. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which, when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread, do ye not yet understand, neither remember, the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then they understood how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. In these verses we find our Lord assailed by the untiring enmity of the Pharisees and Sadducees. As a general rule, these two sects were at enmity between themselves. In persecuting Christ, however, they made common cause. Truly it was an unholy alliance. Yet how often we see the same thing in the present day. Men of the most opposite opinions and habits will agree in disliking the gospel, and will work together to oppose its progress. There is no new thing under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9 The first point in this passage, which deserves special notice, is the repetition which our Lord makes of words used by him on a former occasion. He says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign and there shall be no sign given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. If we turn to the twelfth chapter of this gospel, and the thirty-ninth verse, we shall find that he had said the very same thing once before. This repetition may seem a trifling and unimportant matter in the eyes of some, but it is not so in reality. It throws light on a subject which has perplexed the minds of many sincere lovers of the Bible, and ought therefore to be specially observed. This repetition shows us that our Lord was in the habit of saying the same things over again. He did not content himself with saying a thing once, and afterwards never repeating it. It is evident that it was his custom to bring forth certain truths again and again, and thus to impress them more deeply on the minds of his disciples. He knew the weakness of our memories in spiritual things. He knew that what we hear twice we remember better than what we hear once. He therefore brought out of his treasury old things as well as new. 
Now what does all this teach us? It teaches us that we need not be so anxious to harmonize the narratives we read in the four Gospels, as many are disposed to be. It does not follow that the same sayings of our Lord, which we find the same in St. Matthew and St. Luke, were always used at the same time, or that the events with which they are connected must necessarily be the same. St. Matthew may be describing one event in our Lord's life, St. Luke may be describing another, and yet the words of our Lord, on both occasions, may have been precisely alike. To attempt to make out the two events to be one and the same, because of the sameness of the words used, has often led Bible students into great difficulties. It is far safer to hold the view here maintained, that at different times our Lord often used the same words. The second point which deserves special notice in these verses is the solemn warning which our Lord takes occasion to give to his disciples. His mind was evidently pained with the false doctrines which he saw among the Jews, and the pernicious influence which they exercised. He seizes the opportunity to utter a caution, Take heed, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Let us mark well what these words contain. To whom was this warning addressed? To the twelve apostles, to the first ministers of the Church of Christ, to men who had forsaken all for the gospel's sake. Even they are warned. The best men are only men, and at any time may fall into temptation. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. If we love life and would see good days, let us never think that we do not need that hint take heed and beware. Against what does our Lord warn his apostles? Against the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, we are frequently told in the Gospels, were self-righteous formalists. The Sadducees were skeptics, free thinkers, and half-infidels. Yet even Peter, James, and John must beware of their doctrines. Truly the best and holiest of believers may well be on his guard. By what figure does our Lord describe the false doctrines against which he cautions his disciples? He calls them leaven. Like leaven, they may seem a small thing compared to the whole body of truth. Like leaven, once admitted they would work secretly and noiselessly. Like leaven, they would gradually change the whole character of the religion with which they were mixed. How much is often contained in a single word? It was not merely the open danger of heresy, but leaven, of which the apostles were to beware. There is much in all this that calls loudly for the close attention of all professing Christians. The caution of our Lord in this passage has been shamefully neglected. It would have been well for the Church of Christ if the warnings of the gospel had been as much studied as its promises. Let us then remember that this saying of our Lord's about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees was intended for all time. It was not meant only for the generation to which it was spoken. It was meant for the perpetual benefit of the Church of Christ. He who spoke it saw with prophetical eye the future history of Christianity. The great physician knew well that Pharisee doctrines and Sadducee doctrines would prove the two great wasting diseases of his Church, until the end of the world. He would have us know that there will always be Pharisees and Sadducees in the ranks of Christians. Their succession shall never fail. 
their generation shall never become extinct. Their name may change, but their spirit will always remain. Therefore he cries to us, Take heed and beware. Finally, let us make a personal use of this caution by keeping up a holy jealousy over our own souls. Let us remember that we live in a world where Phariseeism and Sadduceeism are continually striving for the mastery in the Church of Christ. Some want to add to the gospel, and some want to take away from it. Some would bury it, and some would pare it down to nothing. Some would stifle it by heaping on additions, and some would bleed it to death by subtraction from its truths. Both parties agree only in one respect. Both would kill and destroy the life of Christianity if they succeeded in having their own way. Against both errors let us watch and pray and stand upon our guard. Let us not add to the gospel to please the Roman Catholic Pharisee. Let us not subtract from the gospel to please the Neologian Sadducee. Let our principle be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, nothing added to it, and nothing taken away. End of section 48 Section 49 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle Chapter 16, verses 13 to 20 Peter's Noble Confession Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20 when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremias, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. There are words in this passage which have led to painful differences and divisions among Christians. Men have striven and contended about their meaning, till they have lost sight of all charity, and yet failed to carry conviction to one another's minds. Let it suffice us to glance briefly at the controverted words, and then to pass on to more practical lessons. What then are we to understand, when we read that remarkable saying of our Lord's, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church? Does it mean that the Apostle Peter himself was to be the foundation on which Christ's church was to be built. Such an interpretation, to say the least, appears exceedingly improbable. To speak of an erring, fallible child of Adam as the foundation of the spiritual temple is very unlike the ordinary language of Scripture. Above all, no reason can be given why our Lord should not have said, 
I will build my church upon thee, if such had been his meaning, instead of saying, I will build my church upon this rock. The true meaning of the rock in this passage appears to be the truth of our Lord's Messiahship and divinity, which Peter had just confessed. It is as though our Lord had said, Thou art rightly called by the name Peter, or stone, for thou hast confessed that mighty truth, on which, as on a rock, I will build my church. Note, there is nothing modern or peculiarly Protestant in the view here maintained. It was held by Chrysostom long ago. It was taught by Ferris, a Roman Catholic preacher of the Franciscan order, at Mayence in the sixteenth century, in his homilies on St. Matthew. It may be well to remark in this place that it is a complete delusion to suppose that the scriptures can be interpreted according to the unanimous consent of the fathers. There is no such unanimous consent. It is a mere high-sounding phrase, utterly destitute of any foundation in facts. The fathers disagree as much in explaining scripture as Whitby and Gill and Matthew Henry and D'Oyley and Mant. End of note. But what are we to understand when we read the promise which our Lord makes to Peter, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Do these words mean that the right of admitting souls to heaven was to be placed in Peter's hands? The idea is preposterous. Such an office is the special prerogative of Christ himself. Revelations chapter 1 verse 18 do the words mean that Peter was to have any primacy or superiority over the rest of the apostles? There is not the slightest proof that such a meaning was attached to the words in the New Testament times, or that Peter had any rank or dignity above the rest of the twelve. The true meaning of the promise to Peter appears to be that he was to have the special privilege of first opening the door of salvation, both to the Jews and Gentiles. This was fulfilled to the letter when he preached on the day of Pentecost to the Jews, and visited the Gentile Cornelius in his own house. On each occasion he used the keys, and threw open the door of faith, and of this he seems to have been sensible himself. God, he says, made choice among us, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel, and believe. Acts chapter 15, verse 7. Finally, what are we to understand when we read the words, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven? Does this mean that the Apostle Peter was to have any power of forgiving sins and absolving sinners? Such an idea is derogatory to Christ's special office as our great high priest. It is a power which we never find Peter or any of the Apostles, once exercising. They always refer men to Christ. The true meaning of this promise appears to be that Peter and his brethren, the apostles, were to be specially commissioned to teach with authority the way of salvation. As the Old Testament priest declared authoritatively whose leprosy was cleansed, so the apostles were appointed to declare and pronounce authoritatively whose sins were forgiven. Beside this, they were to be specially inspired to lay down rules and regulations for the guidance of the church on disputed questions. Some things they were to bind, or forbid. Others they were to loose, or allow. 
the decision of the council at jerusalem that the gentiles need not be circumcised was one example of the exercise of this power acts chapter sixteen verse nineteen but it was a commission specially confined to the apostles in discharging it they had no successors with them it began and with them it expired we will leave these controverted words here enough perhaps has been said upon them for our personal edification let us only remember that in whatever sense men take them they have nothing to do with the church of rome let us now turn our attention to points which more immediately concern our own souls in the first place let us admire the noble confession which the apostle peter makes in this passage he says in reply to our lord's question whom say ye that i am thou art the christ the son of the living god at first sight a careless reader may see nothing very remarkable in these words of the apostle he may think it extraordinary that they should call forth such strong commendation from our lord but such thoughts arise from ignorance and inconsideration men forget that it is a widely different thing to believe in christ's divine mission when we dwell in the midst of professing christians and to believe in it when we dwell in the midst of hardened and unbelieving jews the glory of peter's confession lies in this that he made it when few were with christ and many against him he made it when the rulers of his own nation the scribes and priests and pharisees were all opposed to his master he made it when our lord was in the form of a servant without wealth without royal dignity without any visible marks of a king to make such a confession at such a time required great faith and great decision of character the confession itself as brentius says was an epitome of all christianity and a compendium of true doctrine about religion therefore it was that our lord said blessed art thou simon barjona we shall do well to copy that hearty zeal and affection which peter here displayed we are perhaps too much disposed to underrate this holy man because of his occasional instability and his thrice repeated denial of his lord this is a great mistake with all his faults peter was a true-hearted fervent single-minded servant of christ with all his imperfections he has given us a pattern that many christians would do wisely to follow zeal like his may have its ebbs and flows and sometimes lack steadiness of purpose zeal like his may be ill-directed and sometimes make sad mistakes but zeal like his is not to be despised it awakens the sleeping it stirs the sluggish it provokes others to exertion anything is better than sluggishness lukewarmness and torpor in the church of christ happy would it have been for christendom had there been more christians like peter and martin luther and fewer like erasmus in the next place let us take care to understand what our lord means when he speaks of his church the church which jesus promises to build upon a rock is the blessed company of all faithful people it is not the visible church of any one nation or country or place it is the whole body of believers of every age and tongue and people it is a church composed of all who are washed in christ's blood clothed in christ's righteousness renewed by christ's spirit joined to christ by faith 
and epistles of Christ in life. It is a church of which every member is baptized with the Holy Ghost, and is really and truly holy. It is a church which is one body. All who belong to it are of one heart and one mind, hold the same truths, and believe the same doctrines as necessary to salvation. It is a church which has only one head. That head is Jesus Christ himself. He is the head of the body. Let us beware of mistakes on this subject. Few words are so much misunderstood as the word church. Few mistakes have so much injured the cause of pure religion. Ignorance on this part has been a fertile source of bigotry, sectarianism, and persecution. Men have wrangled and contended about Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Independent churches, as if it were needful to salvation to belong to some particular party, and as if, belonging to that party, we must of course belong to Christ. And all this time they have lost sight of the one true church, outside of which there is no salvation at all. It will matter nothing at the last day where we have worshipped, if we are not found members of the true church of God's elect. In the last place, let us mark the glorious promises which our Lord makes to his church. He says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The meaning of this promise is, that the power of Satan shall never destroy the people of Christ. He that brought sin and death into the first creation, by tempting Eve, shall never bring ruin into the new creation by overthrowing believers. The mystical body of Christ shall never perish or decay. Though often persecuted, afflicted, distressed, and brought low, it shall never come to an end. It shall outlive the wrath of pharaohs and the Roman emperors. Visible churches, like Ephesus, may come to nothing, but the true church never dies. Like the bush that Moses saw, it may burn, but it shall not be consumed. Every member of it shall be brought safe to glory. In spite of falls, failures, and shortcomings, in spite of the world, the flesh, and the devil, no member of the true church shall ever be cast away. John chapter 10 and verse 28 End of section 49 Section 50 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle Chapter 16, verses 21 to 23 Peter Rebuked Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 23 From that time forth began Jesus to shew unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Then Peter took him, and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned, and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offence unto me, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. In the beginning of these verses, we find our Lord revealing to his disciples a great and startling truth. That truth was his approaching death upon the cross. For the first time, he places before their minds the astounding announcement that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer and be killed. He had not come on earth to take a kingdom, but to die. He had not come to reign, and to be ministered to, but to shed his blood as a sacrifice, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is almost impossible for us to conceive how strange and incomprehensible these tidings must have seemed to his disciples. Like most of the Jews, they could form no idea of a suffering Messiah. They did not understand that the fifty-third chapter of Isaiah must be literally fulfilled. They did not see that the sacrifices of the law were all meant to point them to the death of the true Lamb of God. They thought of nothing but the second glorious coming of Messiah, which is yet to take place at the end of the world. They thought so much of Messiah's crown that they lost sight of his cross. We shall do well to remember this. A right understanding of this matter throws strong light on the lessons which this passage contains. We learn, in the first place, from these verses, that there may be much spiritual ignorance even in a true disciple of Christ. We cannot have a clearer proof of this than the conduct of the Apostle Peter in this passage. He tries to dissuade our Lord from suffering on the cross. Be it far from thee, he says, this shall not be unto thee. He did not see the full purpose of our Lord's coming into the world. His eyes were blinded to the necessity of our Lord's death. He actually did what he could to prevent that death from taking place at all. And yet we know that Peter was a converted man. He really believed that Jesus was the Messiah. His heart was right in the sight of God. These things are meant to teach us that we must neither regard good men as infallible, because they are good men, nor yet suppose they have no grace, because their grace is weak and small. One brother may possess singular gifts, and be a bright and shining light in the church of Christ. But let us not forget that he is a man, and as a man liable to commit great mistakes. Another brother's knowledge may be scanty. He may fail to judge rightly on many points of doctrine. He may err, both in word and deed. But has he faith and love towards Christ? Does he hold the head? If so, let us deal patiently with him. What he sees not now, he may see hereafter. Like Peter, he may now be in the dark, and yet, like Peter, enjoy one day the full light of the gospel. Let us learn in the second place from these verses that there is no doctrine of Scripture so deeply important as the doctrine of Christ's atoning death. We cannot have clearer proof of this than the language used by our Lord in rebuking Peter. He addresses him by the awful name of Satan, as if he was an adversary and doing the devil's work in trying to prevent his death. He says to him, whom he had so lately called blessed, Get thee behind me, thou art an offence unto me. He tells the man whose noble confession he had just commended so highly, Thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Stronger words than these never fell from our Lord's lips. The error that drew from so loving a Saviour such a stern rebuke to such a true disciple must have been a mighty error indeed. The truth is that our Lord would have us regard the crucifixion as the central truth of Christianity. Right views of his vicarious death and the benefits resulting from it lie at the very foundation of Bible religion. Never let us forget this. 
on matters of church government, on the form of worship, men may differ from us and yet reach heaven in safety. On the matter of Christ's atoning death as the way of peace, truth is only one. If we are wrong here, we are ruined forever. Error on many points is only a skin disease. Error about Christ's death is a disease at the heart. Here, let us take our stand. Let nothing move us from this ground. The sum of all our hopes must be that Christ has died for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10 Give up that doctrine, and we have no solid hope at all. End of section 50 Section 51 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle Chapter 16, verses 24 to 28 Necessity of Self-Denial Value of the Soul Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 28 Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited, if he shall gain the whole world, and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of the Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily, I say unto you, There be some standing here, which shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In order to see the connection of these verses, we must remember the mistaken impression of our Lord's disciples as to the purpose of his coming into the world. Like Peter, they could not bear the idea of the crucifixion, they thought that Jesus had come to set up an earthly kingdom. They did not see that he must needs suffer and die. They dreamed of worldly honors and temporal rewards in their master's service. They did not understand that true Christians, like Christ, must be made perfect through sufferings. Our Lord corrects these misapprehensions in words of peculiar solemnity, which we shall do well to lay up in our hearts. Let us learn in the first place, from these verses, that men must make up their minds to trouble and self-denial if they follow Christ. Our Lord dispels the fond dreams of his disciples by telling them that his followers must take up the cross. The glorious kingdom they were expecting was not about to be set up immediately. They must make up their minds to persecution and affliction if they intended to be his servants. They must be content to lose their lives if they would have their souls saved. It is good for us all to see this point clearly. We must not conceal from ourselves that true Christianity brings with it a daily cross in this life, while it offers us a crown of glory in the life to come. The flesh must be daily crucified. The devil must be daily resisted. The world must be easily overcome. There is a warfare to be waged, and a battle to be fought. All this is the inseparable accompaniment of true religion. Heaven is not to be won without it. Never was there a truer word than the old saying, No cross, no crown. 
If we never found this out by experience, our souls are in a poor condition. Let us learn, in the second place, from these verses, that there is nothing so precious as a man's soul. Our Lord teaches us this lesson by asking one of the most solemn questions that the New Testament contains. It is a question so well known, and so often repeated, that men often lose sight of its searching character. But it is a question that ought to sound in our ears like a trumpet, whenever we are tempted to neglect our eternal interests. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? There can only be one answer to this question. There is nothing on earth, or under the earth, that can make amends to us for the loss of our souls. There is nothing that money can buy, or man can give, to be named in comparison with our souls. The world, and all that it contains, is temporal. It is all fading, perishing, and passing away. The soul is eternal. That one single word is the key to the whole question. Let it sink down deeply into our hearts. Are we wavering in our religion? Do we fear the cross? Does the way seem too narrow? Let our Master's words ring in our ears. What shall it profit a man? And let us doubt no more. Let us learn in the last place that the second coming of Christ is the time when his people shall receive their rewards. The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. There is deep wisdom in this saying of our Lord's when viewed in connection with the preceding verses. He knows the heart of a man. He knows how soon we are ready to be cast down, and like Israel of old, to be discouraged by the way. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4. He therefore holds out to us a gracious promise. He reminds us that he has yet to come a second time, as surely as he came the first time. He tells us that this is the time when his disciples shall receive their good things. There will be glory, honor, and reward in abundance one day for all who have served and loved Jesus. But it is to be in the dispensation of the second advent, and not of the first. The bitter must come before the sweet, the cross before the crown. The first advent is the dispensation of the crucifixion. The second advent is the dispensation of the kingdom. We must submit to take part with our Lord in his humiliation, if we mean ever to share in his glory. And now let us not leave these verses without serious self-inquiry as to the matters which they contain. We have heard of the necessity of taking up the cross and denying ourselves. Have we taken it up? And are we carrying it daily? Have we heard of the value of the soul? Do we live as if we believed it? We have heard of Christ's second advent. Do we look forward to it with hope and joy? Happy is that man who can give a satisfactory answer to these questions. End of section 51